think everyone's made it in here. Uh, just wel welcome. This is Visionable Faith. I'm Dave Messner. I'm a minister in the Unitarian tradition, and I am delighted to be hosting three colleagues today. One of them is a special treat. I'm not going to tell you which one. I think you'll figure it out for yourselves. Uh, yeah, Rabbi Haas, would you just say a word to introduce yourself and then pass it on to a colleague? My name is Robert Haas. I'm a rabbi in the reform movement, and I am so thankful that my good friend David Messner called me a special treat today. It makes my day. Thank you, David. You're very welcome. Good man. I Father, love you. Father, love you, Father, Father, save me. Uh, uh, Father Michael Cheney. Say yes, I'm the, I'm the Reverend Professor Michael Cheney. I'm a, an Episcopal priest. I'm a filmmaker, I'm an artist, and I teach film and television making in college. Um, I'm a deadhead and a cinemaphile. What do your students call you in class? Dude. Dude. I was, I was suspecting you were not Reverend Professor Dude, but just you were the dude. So would you have been the dude without the big Lebowski Lebowski? Yeah. Reverend Lee Gibbons, would you say a word? Just introduce yourself. You are indeed the special treat in case it's lost on any of my colleagues. Oh gosh, I'm blushing. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to be here with other treats. Um, my name is Lee Gibbons. I'm a disciples of Christ pastor and I'm, I'm here, uh, as a, a person in transition, I'm awaiting a new call and I'm currently serving as a substitute teacher in the public schools. And I'm the coordinator for a couple of family homeless shelters here in where I live. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, we have an eccentricity that we don't ever say where we are. I, I remembered that from last time and I have to keep catching myself because I- You were so, you were so good. You almost there. Yeah. Like, don't, don't, don't tell them. You can find me at. <laughs> Our fans are so enthusiastic. They will, if they know where you are, they will show up at your house. I'm just telling you that. So just for security reasons, we, we like to leave it a little ambiguous. So at least they have to search you out and stalk. Okay. So you're, well, let me ask this question. Let's start on, on kind of a personal note. Today, this was animal day. And I want to talk about animals in part because I was, I was teaching that in my classes this week, animal ethics and animal rights and this idea of who counts. But before I get into that, I, we were talking about a couple pieces here of news. So, leave you're awaiting uh, you're awaiting news of a new call. Will you get assigned, or you get to pick in your in your tradition? Well, in my in, in the disciples' tradition, you get to pick along with. I mean, the congregation we're congregationalists, so it's a, a decision that you make together. Um, but in this context, I am appointed. So nice, I, yeah. That feels special and new to me. I'm at a stage in my life, I just wouldn't mind being sent. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like, I, I've picked a lot in my life. And if you just told me, like, you're needed here, can you go over there and do this? I, I probably, I'm less picky now, strangely what enough. Yeah. No, I feel yeah, I feel the exactly the same way, except that I wanted to pick where I lived. But then within a certain geographical radius, I wanted to be assigned. So it worked out. I mean, I hope it worked out. We'll, we'll find out soon. Oh, I wish you all the best. <laughs> Thanks, friends. Yeah, they, they're no doubt lucky. And Michael, we were just talking, you have a sabbatical coming up. That's, that's the hope. That's the dream. It looks like it's happening. And, and tell, how will you invent? So a sabbatical is an interesting thing, uh, only shared in that intersection of churches of a certain kind and, and uh, teaching settings of a certain kind. 
tiny subset of the world gets sabbaticals. How will you use yours? I am going to be studying storytelling. I'm very excited about it. I'm looking at the kind of epics of storytelling in situ, you know, going back to oral tradition. I'm going to Ireland. I'm going to listen to some Sean McKay's tell stories about Irish folklore. And then with manuscript culture, I'll be going to some theatrical productions. I'm going to Bloomsday in Dublin to, I'm, I'm currently, you know, uh, in the middle of, of James Joyce's Ulysses, which has always been a lifelong dream to read this beast. Uh, so I'll be, uh, I've got a deadline to finish that of June 16th. Um, I'll also be going to some really interesting immersive storytelling environments, particularly here in the U.S. I'm going to be going to Santa Fe and Denver and Las Vegas to, to visit Meow Wolf. And if you don't know what Meow Wolf is, you need to know it is a really it's it's too 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 challenging to describe right now in in a, in a breath. But uh, I'm, I'll be going to the Moth up in New York City. My friend George Dawes Green founded that, and uh, he's he's got a real knack and a passion for storytelling that I share with him. So that's what I'm up to. Sounds really thrilling. Do you do you go to or where do you go to? Like, isn't there like a national storytelling festival each year? Is that the same? character or story that you're thinking of or it, it is exactly that one is in uh, in rural tennessee or maybe it's arkansas i don't remember but it's it's going to encroach the new academic year in september so i'm going to miss uh-huh. that but um, i'm i'm really looking at storytelling in all of its forms in the oral tradition and the manuscript tradition particularly in terms of religious text uh looking at at plays at novels movies of course and also new immersive stories there's a lot of really interesting immersive theater that's that's emerged, um, as well as virtual reality and uh, installation art. How do you use story? And I'll open this. I'll open this the whole floor. But Michael, you can get the first shot at how, how are you a storyteller in in worship life, or I should say in in church life, whatever congregational life we use that phrase. How, how are you a storyteller now, and how has that evolved? You've been doing this for some time. Yeah, well, at first, you know, as a Southerner, I never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So uh, there's that. Uh, there's also the idea of, you know, are we really are we really relying on facts when we hear stories? Or are we re- really looking for deeper meaning? And, and and I don't know. I don't know why I started with the whole like, you know, what's letting facts get in the way of a good story. But where is storytelling in my life? I love to tell stories in all sorts of ways. I think in, in my worship life, well, I think in all of our great religious traditions, there's a foundation of storytelling. We go back and we look at uh, Genesis creation mythologies, and we go back and compare that to the Epic of Gilgamesh, or we get engaged in the story of the Exodus, or the parables of Jesus, or the stories of the Acts of the Apostles, or whatever our tradition might hold. We're all found a found. We have a foundation there in, in in storytelling, and I like to preach with stories. I I can't remember who it was, but I heard a preacher one time say, "You know, a good sermon's a good story," and I try to incorporate storytelling in my preaching. I try to talk about events that happened in my childhood, or events that happened throughout my life, or maybe something that happened just this week, or share another person's story. But stories give our lives a connection. It gives us meaning. It helps us to understand that we're all more deeply connected than we might think. Turn to, let me turn to Lee and, and, and Robert. How, how have you evolved as storytellers? I know both of you to be uh, quite gifted storytellers. How, how is that coming through in your ministry nowadays? Well, I think storytelling is something that is pretty much completely part of anything you do. 
whether it's in the church, in the house of worship, with your family. And so it continues to be a way, and I think Michael said it, you know, it's not always about truth in terms of the facts, but it is about truth in terms of the meaning. And obviously storytelling goes way back. The Bible was very likely told from word of mouth from one generation to the next before it was written down. And for me, storytelling is is about how to find a way to connect. How can I bring religion to the modern world in a way that people can really feel it? And storytelling is one of the ways, and it's also one of those things that is very difficult today because, as Michael said, there's so many other things out there, be games and TV and so much. So storytelling really takes a little bit more effort to find how you can do it, whether it's using a little bit of humor, using apropos mini stories, finding ways to gauge what they're looking for. So it's pretty exciting. We love telling stories. And uh, I think in every tradition, we use them in our sermons, obviously, but also all the time. So uh, kudos to Michael, because I, I found, you know, basically the story I want to tell is what is the excuse I'm going to tell my congregation to let me follow Michael on his journey this summer because he's having a way better one than I am. So how am I going to do that? So we that's the story I'm going to figure out. We got to come back to the unwritten story of your summer. How about you, Leave? Are you, are you a storyteller? You're working with young people now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of instantly. I mean, um, like everyone has said, uh, storytelling is such a huge part of being a pastor and what we do when we gather and being kind of um, the one to encourage other people to tell their stories and to enter the story through the sermon. Um, And often there's stories within stories because we'll be telling the story from scripture, but we'll also be using stories from, uh, from real life or from the newspaper or from our experiences. Yeah, that's all really great. That's wonderful. I love that part of ministry, my favorite part of being a a preacher. Uh, But you know, right now I'm with kids and they love stories. I mean, we, we love stories from the moment we're born. I mean, just, you can even tell a story to a, to an infant and they'll just be enraptured. I mean, you could probably tell them anything, but um, like storytelling is just so important for the littles. And today it was like, that was the, at school, that's where they could really focus and they, they, their bodies quieted down and their focus was really directed up at the front of the room and they were just completely into the story. And that was, that was wonderful. So it's a wonderful way to teach and to connect with the kids and to help them recenter themselves. And, and that never goes away. I love it so much. Nice. I, I was thinking, I don't know who used the phrase referred to small stories and one of the things I, I like to think is <laughs> that I'm getting smaller uh, as as I as I age in in a number of ways actually, but in in the ways that the stories become like a story can be the story seed is smaller and can be explored in a way that cut, like brings life to life, right? Uh, and so it's not just like the big stories, like everything's got to be a big story. I appreciate told well. Children and adults both will jump into a very small story with a lot of passion and that's a neat phenomenon to me and you don't know who the characters are and you don't really know where they are but there's just like one little moment and that's enough and yeah. some of the early desert father stories other desert father and mother stories they're really short but like you learn more than you're going to learn for the rest of the year in those like six sentences 
That's wonderful. Think about it too, like in, in Eastern tradition, like in koans, oh, some, yes. some some Buddhist, like they're kind of just short, but they're a story to like live with and work with and think with. Well, of course, a number of the parables are quite short. I mean, that we could, could spend a lot of time knocking around inside a story as a kind of, uh, yeah, as a ground for play, which feels You should fun. be pushing these out on TikTok. That's I mean, right? three minutes now. So. Yeah. First, before we do that, let's define TikTok finally for somebody. <laughs> this talk tick and how do I get it? And will they deliver it with my newspaper? Does it have something to do with heart problems is what I'm wondering. That's what I still wonder to this day. Why do so many people who are young have heart problems? Mm. When, it, when, it, when it comes to storytelling, that way, there's a famous Yiddish story that deals with artificial intelligence. And the story is, I'll believe in artificial intelligence the day I ask a computer a question and it starts off by saying, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> Good. That's deep, actually. I like it. It is like we, that is, that's one of the things I'm teaching. I'm doing a philosophy class. And what we talk a lot about is like the ground of dignity. Like what is our humanness? And right, like the are we the, the storytelling animal? McIntyre said we were the storytelling animal. Like that's the kind of distinction. Your animals don't tell you stories; they do other stuff. But you, you need a good rabbi for that. You need a good rabbi. So they're so cute. So. Was that yeah? They got other things going for. So let me ask this: Tell me a story, if you would, just a quick story about the place of an animal somewhere in your life. Some time in your whole life narrative that you've had a personal relationship with an animal and tell me a story about that important animal. It only has to be 30 seconds. Well, I, I have, I'm not a dog person per se. I am now, but my girlfriend at the time was working at a car dealership and we were getting pretty serious. And she calls me out of the blue and says, Coastal Pet Rescue is here. It's a pet organization. I'm going to adopt a dog. And so I left my meeting with probably the synagogue president and I drove like a maniac over there to stop her from getting this dog. And I get there and she's looking at this tiny dog that was definitely in the top three ugliest dogs I've ever seen. These were old, sick dogs. And I made a very strong case by you're getting serious. I have allergies. We shouldn't get a dog. And she looked at me so politely understanding what I said. She said, well, you're right. I'm going to give you a choice. I can get this dog or that one over there. And she pointed to this really giant 130 pound dog that had a lot of hair. And so we, we got the little dog. And did, did she get to keep the dog uh, and when she ditched you or did she leave you with the dog? No, the dog fell in love with me. So then we had to, so it was a dog. had to marry me. That's it. Oh, you, you, you got the dog and her. That's right. That's great. That's great. Yeah. who's next i knew that was that punchline to the story i knew this wasn't and now she hates me and she i see her walking that dog outside the synagogue all the time and she shakes her fist at me <laughs> it's your turn you jerk no leave how about you tell me an animal story mm, okay so when i was seven um i was walking with my dad through the wheat fields around milton Freewater, where our family farm is and we wandered up into the hills and while we were walking this white dog 
probably like a Samoyed, a fluffy white dog, real friendly, just joined us on our walk. And this was really special for me. I'd never had a pet, never even had a goldfish. And um, all of a sudden we had this companion and she walked with us for 10 miles that day and played fetch and would run off a little bit and then come back. And she just took that whole walk with us that day. And I, I, I guess the farmer didn't mind that she'd gone off. Um, she was in good hands. We just had a wonderful time with her. And then when it was time to go, she ran off through the fields and we turned for the farm. And I still remember that. I don't remember a lot from being a kid, but I remember that day. And I remember that dog. I named her White Tiger. Mm. So it's kind of a seven-year-old name for a dog, but uh, she still is in my heart. And I don't even like dogs, but I like her. Do you have a dog now? I do. I do have a dog. Sorry, she's deaf, so she can't hear. I was going to say, wow. <laughs> like, does she listen to podcasts or no? Right here. No. Um, yeah, I also have Zolo, who uh, you probably remember. We got her in seminary. Oh Zolo's an exception. She's not really a dog. Um, she's not a dog dog. <laughs> she's... Uh, One of those hybrid human robot dogs. Exactly, yeah. Uh, half human, half robot. Biological abominations. I've, I know that. I, I'm very much a dog person, and I had this beautiful dog, the best dog that ever lived. The best dogs. When, when Plato thinks of a dog, he thought of this dog. Right. And uh, it, it's such a wonderful dog. He died about 16 years ago. And when, when I have three boys, and uh, it must have been about a... Uh, but nine years ago, we decided boys need a dog. So we went to the Humane Society to get a dog. And we all went in and we all looked at the dogs. And then with three boys getting routed, we all kind of went back out to the minivan to talk about it. And my wife came back holding a little black cat. <laughs> and my kids looked at that and said, that's a bad, bad dog. <laughs> uh, it, to this day, we have a cat named Bad, Bad Dog. I love that. That's perfect. Did you get a dog also? No. So <laughs> I call it the dog. I said, somebody let the dog in the house. Uh, has anybody seen the dog? We just re- refer to it like it's a dog. So good. They fed the dog, walked the dog, <laughs> you know. Nice. Dogs, where's the dog? Dog's in the bed. So that's. that's... We had some parallel. I, there was a, a day when my daughter was relatively young. Uh, and, uh, I was attempting to induce her to do something she didn't want to do. And I was trying to get over a hump, like to encourage her to like take this leap or whatever. Like, and, and she was very interested in uh, tarantulas. Right. And I said, I get you a tarantula. If you, if you do, anyway, she did the thing. She was like, okay, I closed the deal. And, but then I had to like deliver on like a tarantula, the size of your head. And which freaked out my wife. My wife was like, what do you do? Like one, that's not how you parent. That's crazy. Two, now we got it. And so my daughter, who's very sophisticated and sensitive, uh, simply named it gerbil. And so whenever we talk about it, we just say, oh, you know, oh, yeah, the gerbil. Oh, the gerbil is out. Just be aware. Oh, the gerbil's out running around. <laughs> oh, okay. And so as people come over, it's like, oh, yeah, we have a gerbil. And then they see it. It's like this, <gasps> like, sort of like huffing creature the size of a dinner plate. How and, long do tarantulas live? Uh, it lived for years and years. And then it passed. And we were sad. Uh, it's <laughs> That's a really short story. Yeah. Lived for years and years, and then it passed, and we were sad. Well, you can tell I do a lot well, of anyway, really? That's often I will get, like, 
Rabbi Haas was with us and he continued with us for quite a long time. And then he's not any longer with us. And now the reception begins at 1230. Yeah. Anyway, no, you'll, you'll score more. I'm writing for each of my good friends. I'm writing a eulogy just so I won't be caught off guard. Um, After that one, you're not doing mine. That was that was just the taste. That was I didn't want to give away the good stuff. I'm giving Leave or Michael the job now. I saved the jokes because I, like I don't want people like not to laugh during my eulogy for you. That would be the ultimate dishonor. Like that wasn't funny. <laughs> so let me ask this question. This is something I was asking my students this week. Like we've talked about some of our animals, and I'm gonna, I would talk. About, I, I'm a dog guy too. But like, are your the dogs you've told stories about or quasi dogs? Are they people? And and how would you argue, like, that they are or are not persons? That's the hardest question in Judaism in respects when they ask, do animals have souls? And that is a very difficult one. So my answer is, no, animals do not have souls except for dogs. <laughs> And they asked me, is that what it says in the Talmud? And my answer is, absolutely. Do, do uh, well, I guess it, this could be the insolment question. And nothing says that insolment is necessarily personhood. That equation, I mean, we could d- discuss. But do, do, do animals have an afterlife, Rabbi? That's a bigger debate. Now, in Judaism, Souls are not generally given to animals traditionally, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not views. As for the afterlife, there are so many different viewpoints. Most of them don't really center on dogs. But as we know, for many of us, if we want to go to a good place in the next world and we've done what we're supposed to do, many of us may want dogs if we keep our individuality. So there is definitely some discussion in that area. Someone else want to weigh in on personhood for their pooch? There's this great poem by Pablo Neruda called A Dog Has Died. And in the opening uh, stanzas, he says, like, well, I've never believed in a heaven for me, but I do believe in a heaven I'll never enter. Yes, I believe in a heaven for all dogdom. And I love that. So anyway, and then he goes on to tell an ode about his, uh, his dog. But I was thinking of Job 12, where uh, there's this bit of wisdom. If you want to learn, then go and ask the wild animals and the birds and the fish. Any any of them can tell you what the Lord has done. Every living creature is in the hands of God. So I don't have a great answer about exactly what heaven will look like. But I trust the scriptures when they tell us that all these creatures are in God's hands. That would be my answer. Yeah, I, I believe in that reunion. That reunion, yeah, Michael. We've this gone we've gone heavy theological now, so I, I know to- this is this gets you know. I first of all, leave. I really appreciate what you just offered this there with both Pablo Neruda and the Book of Job. I think those hold up our our animal compadres. I I'm in a I'm in a sticky situation here, guys. You see, I like to hunt and fish and 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 eat the things that I that I harvest. Uh, and and therein lies the slippery slope. You know, if, if, if I will catch a fish and eat it, okay. And how much of a, you know, a, a, it's not that big of a step to say how, you know, I can, I can shoot a duck and eat it. 
And then it's kind of like, well, if I can eat the duck, then, you know, do I eat a deer or do I eat a cow or, you know, and then if I eat a cow, would I eat a dog? And I'm like, whoa, that's where I draw the line, you know, because I've, I've known some dogs. I've known some cows and I've never thought twice about not eating them. But dogs, they're just different, man. I was going to say, I mean, nothing says that we have to extend personhood to all the creatures. I mean, just dogs, cats, certainly not. Well, Nirvana said that fish don't have feelings, so... Well, I had a number of students stand up this week and tell me that there were good studies of pain receptor transmission, you know, in response to trauma to fish. And so I had to, I had to yield on that a little bit. I'm not giving up salmon. <laughs> me either, not, not sushi. But heaven for me in many respects is me sitting down with Goldie and just scratching her tuchas. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's going to be heaven. But from a Jewish perspective, which I think is very apropos here, there are rules for all animals, no matter what category they may be part of. In other words, beast of burden, food, pets, and the same responsibility is for all of them. You have to treat them with respect. You have to feed them. You have to give them days off if they're beasts of burden. In fact, there's a rule that says you cannot eat until your animals have been fed. So. And this is a really, in some ways, contradictory belief, because obviously, as Michael said, some animals you're going to kill. Some are working for you without getting paid, and some are like family. But yet the rules are still there for everyone. I'm jumping back a little bit on heaven. And I, it's, it always it makes me laugh at myself a little bit. Um, it was written by a woman named Cynthia Ryland, wrote a book called Dog Heaven. And it's a little picture book that it's just beautiful drawings and everything. And it's about dog heaven. Like it's straightforward. You know, the whole story now, but it's so sweet. And I have shared this with like young people after they've lost their pets and things like that. I, I usually give away copies, I, but it's, it's wonderful because I'm not sure it's what I believe about heaven. Broadly speaking, but it, it is delicious and compelling. So I encourage you to it because the theological weight of my, the way I am hooked by this book is, is pretty significant. Cause I'm like, yeah, it's got to be like that. It's got to be like that. And it's a funny, that's a funny feeling. Like, how could it not, you know, like it must have some moral weight, just that sensibility. Like, how could it be otherwise, you know, even if it's childish, you know? Well, so, so tell me, are there, are there animals? So Michael's out killing. Uh, quite often. Uh, are there animals that you cannot abide, like Michael? I will kill you and I will eat you. Starlings. Starlings? Yeah, over here, because they're, they're an invasive species. So, uh, starlings. And um, I destroyed a few wasp nests this week. So, those two. Yeah, wasps are pollinators, right? So, yeah. Okay. So I do, I feel guilty about that. And in the right place, starlings are an important part of the ecosystem. They're not where I am. Do they do uh, some kind of, what kind of work do they do? I mean, I, there's all that stuff about the murmuration of the starlings, right? Yeah, pretty... I, I'd say that they are in theater and they're, they're entertainers, but we don't want them over here because do you they know how it. starlings got here. This is a great story. Are you, are you familiar? In eight, I mean, eight? I think I've heard it, but it'll be better from you. So in, in 1890, a Shakespeare enthusiast in New York 
wanted to bring over every bird from every Shakespearean work and introduce it to New York City. Well, the starlings loved it, apparently. There were no starlings in North America or in any of the Americas until 1890. So when this bird enthusiast, this literary enthusiast introduced them, they flourished and now we have them. Uh, and way too many of them. And and that's what happens when we introduce animals to places where they don't belong. And you can look to Australia and the cane toads as a perfect example. Australia also had a, a, a wicked rabbit problem, did they not? Yeah, wicked rabbits are definitely an issue. Yeah, I mean, we got to, and then we're all squeamish about eating these folks. I mean, you know, are, do starlings not make good eating? No, I wouldn't worry about eating a starling unless things get really rough. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to be in that. I was using in classes we got use flamingos. I was so we we're talking about like animals that are just in the purely wild category, nice to look at, but you don't eat them. And yes. nowadays, I got young people. They were like googling. They were like, actually, before it was protected by the Bird Act of 1951, you could boil, uh, and it tasted a little bit like shrimp. Anyway, it was an interesting debate. As everyone was like, would you eat that? Yeah, nice. <laughs> Let me ask this now. I'm going to link it. I asked you about storytelling in your in your in the spaces in which you do ministry how do animals show up there how do animals show up liturgically or in your in your teaching and preaching and whatnot well everybody loves saint francis you know and that that was a dude two two stories there that was like the uh blessing of the animal sermon like she like nailed it right that's what i was gonna say i was like oh that's really good for october go ahead anyway i'm sorry michael i cut you off no it's uh that's right on the money you know i mean uh we we celebrate the feast of saint francis and the blessing of uh, blessing of the animals in october and that's a wonderful liturgical tradition we have in our church and you know people can bring their their animals or their pets to church um i have my google image as me with my clerical collar on and a squirrel sitting on my shoulder that i was asked to bless one one sunday one feast of saint francis um it's a it's a wonderful tradition we we bless our pets we bless the animals that are dear to us uh but saint francis himself you know he he preached to the birds it's such a wonderful idea like i am so in love with all of creation let me share it with you even if you you don't understand the words coming out of my mouth you'll understand the inspiration from whence it came this year, I have to share, I, I, I got to bless a chicken. I have a good picture of me blessing a, a very charismatic chicken. That was nice. Each year, I get excited if someone brings something like, oh. So how about you, Leif? Oh, sorry, David. What'd you say? Oh, I said, how about you? Animals in, in your religious life. Well, you know, there's some naturalists that have kind of made it into the informal canon can you have an informal canon no who who are kind of extra canonical in the church like mary oliver and wendell berry so like you're gonna read wild geese especially if you have religious facebook friends you're just gonna that's gonna be like every month and then you've got the piece of wild things at most funerals and then um i mean if you've got annie dillard fans and you know just like and throw people and so like there's all these folks who are kind of in the circuit that feels awfully Unitarian to me. Those four writers you just named are so, are like four pillars of. <laughs> you guys might be having um, you got you're just uh, making waves in the church, universal. So, 
it's rubbing off on us, you know, and we had, we have the liturgical year from our high church friends now down here in the disciples dem, low church disciples. And now we've got a bunch of you, you naturalists. <laughs> Although we appropriated Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver was not actually Unitarian, but I just like the frequency with, with which her texts come into the church. I, I like, I'm afraid to use them now because there's so no one can claim Mary Oliver. I was in a McDonald's in Beijing and saw one of her poems plastered on a wall. I, I, I promise you this happened. Oh, that's bananas. Why was it just I, on, like, it was, it was like, a, it was one of the walls of the whole McDonald's, no. just the whole mural size, Mary Oliver poem. And I'm, oh, I'm enjoying my, you know, it's always been very big in China. <laughs> Robert, do you do a blessing of the animals? We do one every year. Obviously COVID has stymied that, but we do a blessing every year. We try to coincide it. Uh, with the doggy event in the park nearby. Yeah. So that you can do the bring any of the pets you want after Sunday school. And then you go to the park if you have dogs. And so it's a really fun event. So hopefully we'll get to do that again this year. I don't know if they're having the event at the park, but I think they probably are. So, uh, but it's so much fun because you obviously see the dogs and a few cats, but then you always have a few unusual pets that make it that much more exciting. And then you'll have dogs that have yarmulkes on or cats that have sweaters. So it's fun and everybody loves their pets and it's really wonderful to see people. And it's amazing how much we love our pets. Like my dog, who I love, I mentioned Goldie, hated everybody, just hated everybody, was barking all the time. My family, when they came to visit, could not understand how my wife and I were so enamored with this really ugly dog that was always scratching itself because it was allergic to everything, never learned how to be house trained, bark nonstop, not at the postman only, but when the mail would come through, she would sit there for five to 10 minutes and just bark at the mail. And so there's something about pets and the love you have for them that no matter their, how strange they are or how interesting. And I remember very, you know, we thought that she wasn't potty trained, but I remember we left for like three days and she was really upset. So I came home. We have the little pee pad there. And she's sitting on the pee pad looking at me. And then she walks off the pee pad. Her face stays on me the whole time and pees on the floor. And then walks right back onto the pee pad just to show me how upset she was. And I said, that's the dog for me. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a person. That's, that's a dog person. person. Yeah. Okay. I have a closing round of questions for you. This time is all too brief. We might have to do another animal day in the future. Well, we can do one in October. So in six months, we can do another animal day. But okay, you're going to be reincarnated as an animal. What animal will you be reincarnated as? Mm. You only get to do one. Well, you can do one and then you can do a second one after that if it's a very short-lived animal. So I was just um, suffering from a little works righteousness here. And so I had to Google the five most useful animals for climate change. Oh, for climate? Oh, see, you're going to be serious. Yeah, go ahead. Because I was thinking pollinators, right? So my first thought was like, okay, I'll come back as like a bee or some, maybe a, an endangered pollinator we need more of to keep the, the food supplies mm -hmm. high. But um, these animals are great. You can be a whale or a wolf or a sea otter or an elephant. And so... Or a tapir? I'm going to choose elephant, an African elephant specifically. Because they're they're, I don't think they're pollinators. No, they're not, but they can. 
was like, I was like, this is like leaves, wacky biology. It's like they might from flower to flower. And things are getting pretty dire, so they might have to pick up another job. But um, right now, they trample through the jungle and they keep all of like the shrubs low, and so that the trees can grow. Like they trample all the little plants that would stifle the big trees. And so they allow the trees to grow tall and healthy. And so anyway, uh, they, they, they're forest protectors. So I mean, African elephant, thank you. That's fabulous. Much. And I won't say where you are, but you're in a good forested place. Yeah. So forest protector seems right on target. Okay, yeah. Michael. It had to be something smart that nobody would eat. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking... First, I thought goats and octopuses are both pretty smart, but eat the hell out of those. So, you know, maybe a dolphin. Like, or a tapeworm, something like more, uh, like, yeah, like you could be something more parasitic. Or a, no, a, no, I'm down with the David Bowie song, you know, like the dolphins can swim, something like the, along those lines. Nice. Dolphins, I feel, well, dolphin, the, you've both chosen charismatic creatures prone yeah. to, like, mistreatment. I don't know. I worry for you. I'm uh, telling you, tapeworm, it doesn't seem like a glamorous job, but... Um, somebody's got to do it, right? <laughs> right. Rabbi, how about you? Um, well, funny enough, my father hated dolphins, he, and he was a fisherman, because whenever he saw a dolphin in his area, he knew the fish were leaving, and the only time he ever cussed in his whole life was when he saw dolphins. But for me, it's got to be something cool. I mean, like, if I'm going to be an animal and I get to choose, I'm going to be a predator. I mean, there's just no way about it. And I want to fly. So it's going to be like an eagle or a hawk, something with talons, really preferably good. in an endangered species. So nobody will shoot at me. But if not, then I may die. But at least I've got to be the guy. I get to be the bully, you know, this time. And I, but legal bully because I have to eat. So it's not like I'm being bullied to be mean. And so I'm going to be, I, I think I'm going to go meet Eagle instead of a hawk, but I could go. Uh, hawk. Henry is right. If does, does not the Torah tell us specifically, we may not eat eagles. Yeah. But people like, who, who do sometimes hunt them, but the Torah does not say that specifically. It's very vague on birds. Torah basically only says you can eat these birds and you can't eat these birds, but obviously they're living in a particular place in the world and they have a very selective view of birds. So it's later thought that they possibly meant yes eat birds like doves and chicken but don't eat birds of prey so that's the general rule and so it's not there's exceptions to the rule obviously but generally speaking birds of prey no birds that are not birds of prey often yes but so a turducken no, is safe probably but not not a flaming turk ducking, <laughs> which is taking that whole mess and stuffing it in a pink bird. Well, I the the proper answer is a shark. Huh? I will be a shark. Really? Yeah. Right. I just want to keep moving, and I like the cold water, and I like to eat other fish. That will be. <laughs> That's a good point. It's it's sushi all the time. Um, good point. The sushi bar is always open. <laughs> You're a great white shark. There's no reservation. There's no waiting. It's just, yeah. So, well, my friends, it was a delight to be together. And I thank everyone who's joined us here in our studio audience. This is Visionable Faith. 
and we'll be back next week at 4 p.m. Look for this. We're going to be loaded up and distributed this podcast shortly in all the places where the finest podcasts are distributed. Thanks so much. Peace be with you till we're together again.